Hey, 10 a.m., I'm glad you're here. Why don't you take your seats? I'm so glad that you're here. We are wrapping up uh, this series that we've been in for the last few weeks, and it's called On Purpose. We've been taking a look at the life and impact of David. Uh, here at City, we're all about helping people take their next step. And one of those steps is the purpose step. That's what this series has been all about. And when we've looked at David and how he walked out in the godly purpose that was given to him, what we find is there's this connection between passion and purpose. And we see in these different moments in David's life that we've been looking at, moments where he gets his passions right and he gets his passions wrong. And moments where he walks out purpose rightly and wrongly. And so throughout these weeks, we've been seeing this combination of how it all fits together. Because we need to be a people, if we're going to walk in the purpose that God has for you, and I, would, I hope you know God has a purpose for you. Specifically you, tailor-made, it's for you. But if we're going to walk out in that purpose, we're going to have to align a godly passion with the godly purpose that God has. And so we saw even in week one, uh, in David and Goliath, famous story, David as a young boy, he has a right purpose in going out to uh, take out Goliath, who is literally standing and cursing the armies of the living God. But he has a passion that's a bit wayward because he was chasing the reward for, for doing that. In week two, James took a look at a moment where David had a godly passion, a passion to see the people have a place to worship God. He said, I sit in a palace, but God doesn't have a house for his presence. And so he seeks to build a temple. But God says, that is not a purpose I have for you. That is a purpose I have for your son. And so what happens when we walk our purpose, but God says no. And then last week, Vaughn took us to, uh, it was probably a really bad one because it was wrong on all fronts. Completely bad. David is in his later years, even as he is king, takes a census where he counts all of his soldiers, his armies, his, his fighting men. And what we find is wrong, uh, wrong purpose because God never actually asked him to properly do that and wrong passion because actually he was putting his faith in the number of men he had in his army, not faith in God. And so he was wrong passion, wrong purpose. We're actually going to find him in a similar place today, but watch how God restores and how God turns it back. We're going to rewind in David's life uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 30. And just to orientate you, at this time, David is probably around about 30 years old. He is on the cusp of taking the throne. De uh, actually, in the next couple chapters, uh, King Saul is going to pass away, and David is actually going to ascend the throne, the throne that he had been anointed by God years and years before, actually walking in the purpose that God had for him. And um, as we watch him in this place, just before he's about to step into the great purpose God had for him, he was walking with wrong passion and wrong purpose. But God has a plan for restoration to turn him back. And so uh, he has a, a, a place that he gets to, um, and it's in the enemy territory. It's known as the Philistine territory. We know the Philistines are bad guys. We know that they have got massive issues with the nation of Israel. Um, but in Philistine ter territory, we find David in 1 Samuel chapter 30 in a city called Ziklag. Say Ziklag. If you're taking notes, this message, I gave the title from A to Ziklag. That was a dad joke. And I got such a good laugh at the 8 a.m. and the 10 a.m. just like failed me. From A to Ziklag, that's a good one. I'm, I'm, I'm not changing it. I'm not changing it. It's, that's what it is. 
But before we get into David and his men at Ziglag and the bad place that they're in, I just want to set the scene for us because I think it's important that we understand exactly what brought him to this moment. If you for, uh, rewind a few chapters, uh, I'll give you the story in 30 seconds quickly. Uh, Israel rebel against God. God is their king. And they say, we want a human king, a king like the other nations. And so they select Saul. Saul was not selected by God. He was selected by man. And so inevitably, Saul will fail and Saul will be rejected as king. God then says, I'm going to choose a man for you. He chooses David, anoints him, says, this is a man after my own heart. He will lead you. He will be your king. But as a young boy, he goes and faces, faces David and Goliath, and we watch him as he is growing. Saul is still on the throne. He saw it has been rejected, but he's going to hold the throne for many, many years. David is going to grow in stature and renown. He will grow in his skill. He becomes a well-known warrior. And the nation of Israel is starting to take notice. Saul does too. Saul actually, Scripture tells us, looks at David with an eye of jealousy. There's songs sung in Israel that would say, uh, Saul kills thousands, but David kills his ten thousands. And so he, in his jealousy, now actually rages against David to the point where he says, I'm going to murder David. David needs to die. And so for about a decade of David's life, he is on the run from King Saul before he will take the throne. We find him at the end of that decade coming to Ziklag. It actually says in, the, in 1 Samuel 27, this is where David gets to. Then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing, nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. David's about to hit rock bottom. And setting the stage for that moment is this, what was going on in his heart. He was walking in fear and no longer walking in faith. This is what fear does to the human heart, and we need to take note of it. Fear is going to literally uh, knock us off course when we're trying to seek the things of God and His purpose for us. Fear does two very important things. Fear makes us forget God's power and forget God's promises. David is scared of Saul. He's been running for 10 years from him. He's breathing murderous threats against David. And David, in his fear, forgets that God is powerful far more, a far more powerful king than the king that sat on the throne. And he also forgot the promise that God had made because God had given him a promise and said, you will not fall by the hand of Saul. In his fear, he gets blinded to that. He forgets God's power and he forgets God's promise. And so he decides, I'm going to eject. I'm going to exit. I'm actually going to move out of the land of Israel, God's chosen land, his promised land for his people. He says, I'm going to move out of that. I'm going to go stay in the enemy land. I'm going to run and hopefully Saul won't find me there. And in that enemy territory, he comes to one of the kings of the Philistines, the king of Gath. His name was Achish. And he makes a deal with him. And the deal was all around this place of Ziklag. It says in verse 6, so that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. I hope we don't miss this on the front end, that if we're walking and desiring to walk in the purpose that God has for us, the most dangerous place we can be is outside of that purpose and outside of his presence. The most dangerous place we could be is in enemy territory. Because when we walk in enemy territory, it is literally going to destroy our purpose. Ziklag is a Hebrew word that actually means a place of winding or twisting. 
Ziklag for David would be a place where he was twisted away from the purpose that God had for him. Where he was twisted away, his heart, his passion, his faith was all twisted away. Where now he would walk in glory of self, he would walk in fear, he wouldn't walk in the way that God had called him. And they were there for nearly uh, a year and a half. And the way they would go about it is they would stay in the city of Ziklag. And from there they would go out and raid different villages and cities all in the Philistine territory. And because they are now in the service of and friends with a Philistine king, what they would have to do is lie to him and say, no, no, we went and raided our own people, the Israelites. And so it meant that they had to up their brutality. Because actually scripture does tell us that uh, in verse 9, and David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and then come back to Akish. And so David and his men for about nearly a year and a half would go out raiding uh, the Philistine people. The Amalekites were a main one. You're going to see them feature just now. And as they would raid, they would kill everybody so that no witnesses were left. Because when they went back to the Philistine king who they were friendly with, they would give him his tribute, and then he would ask, where did you make raid today? And they would say, oh no, we made raid in Judah. We made raid against the Israelites. And so he saw, and Akish is sitting there thinking, I've got this guy on my side. It gets so bad that what we find happening just before chapter 30, where we'll be today, David and his men are led into battle with the Philistine army against the Israelite army. That's how bad it gets. He's literally willing to fight his own people. Thank goodness in God's providence, the Philistine kings reject him. They don't want to be in. And they get sent back to Ziklag. And on the way back to Ziklag, this is where we find ourselves. He's in enemy territory. He's serving an enemy king. I want to talk about a message that's going to talk about how we move from pain to purpose. This is going to be our plan for the day. How do we move from pain to purpose? Under three big headings, pain, pursuit, purpose. First one is pain. They're on their way back to Ziklag, the place that has been their home for a year and a half after being rejected by the Philistine army, and they're on their way home. This is what happens in verse 1. It says, now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made raid, raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the woman and all who were in it, both great and small. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with them raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive. And then verse 6 says, And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all of the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David is going to reap the consequences on what the last year and a half had been sowing. And so I think we need to take a look in the midst of David's pain and see the crash of consequence. We need to understand that when we walk in sinful ways, when we make decisions that are now outside of God and into enemy territory, we're going to reap consequences. Sometimes the place of rock bottom is the sum of our decisions, choices, and environment. 
And sometimes we are the ones who will walk ourselves into these consequences. That was the story for David and his men. Now, maybe for some of us, when we take a look at the pain of loss in David and his men, we can't really relate to it. Maybe we've never experienced our house being burnt and sacked and our wives and children being taken away in captivity by an enemy people. But I think some of us will understand what it means to have the pain of loss. The pain of financial loss, the pain of relational loss, the pain of walking the road of, or a journey of grief, you understand that that loss is, is, is overwhelming. It says that they wept so that there was no more strength left in them. That's the, the rock bottom that they find themselves in. And the interesting thing is sometimes we understand that that pain or that loss is actually because of a consequence based on our action. For David and his men, they had, had, had been raiding against the Amalekites. And so are we shocked that the Amalekites come back and do the same? Actually, the Amalekites were nicer to him because they didn't, he did, they didn't kill his wife and children. He did that. But our consequence based on the action. The other side to it is that there are some who will face consequences not based on their action, but the consequence of someone else's action. Those wives and children are innocent in this. They didn't make the action that caused the consequence, but trust me, they're living in it right now. And this is the danger when we walk out uh, sin, when we walk out an enemy lifestyle, an enemy, uh, when we're in enemy territory. We shouldn't be shocked that this is what happens. Because if you walk in a lifestyle for long enough, very quickly that lifestyle will live in you. If you are going to stay in enemy territory for long enough, we shouldn't be shocked that enemy ways get into you. If you're going to make sin your residence, don't be shocked when sin makes a residence within you. For a year and a half, David and his men would walk not in godly ways, but in sinful ways. And he had forgotten what I think is probably the greatest danger to us walking out godly purpose. He had become so desensitized to his sin. He was just trying to uh, cover everything over. I will have this brutal hand against those that I am raiding because I'm so worried that I need to deceive the, king, the enemy king I'm going back to. And so I, can, I understand that this is an important goal, so therefore I can overlook what I had to do to get there. The greatest weapon that the enemy can use in the journey of purpose is this desensitization to sin. We forget that sin is death. We forget that sin is actually it has a death sentence over our purpose. David's consequence wasn't just for him. His wife, his wives were taken captive. His house was burnt. Individually, he faced the consequence. But there was consequences that went far beyond that. And this is the danger when we walk in sin. It very rarely only affects you. It very rarely only damages you. So often we find consequence coming against us because of someone else's sin. That's where David finds himself. He's at rock bottom. And comes the turning point at the end of verse 6. And I love what it says. It says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He's at rock bottom and he's in that place where it feels like the only way now is up. And so many people, if, the, if you look through First and Second Samuel, they might struggle with David even as a character. My mom is this person. My mom, honestly, she has a, a love-hate relationship with David. And it's more hate than love, I can tell you that. 
Because when you walk through First and Second Samuel and you see what the guy does and you see the decisions he makes and you see uh, where he goes wrong, you start to question, God, how on earth is this a man after your own heart? I think these are the moments that give us a picture as to what a flawed David looks like, but a heart that's after God. Because he gets to rock bottom where quite literally there's no elevator that can go lower. But in that place, he makes a turn. In that place, his heart is turned to God. But David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. Uh, on Mondays, we have our staff meeting, and, and periodically a part of our staff meeting will be a moment where we break up into pairs or threes or whatever it might be, and we pray for each other as a staff. And we did that this past Monday. And it was before I had done uh, prep on this preach, but I had a, I had a word for uh, someone I was praying for as they had shared about what they, what they want to pray for. And the word I had from God for them actually is so poignant to where David is right now. And I think it's the story where, of, of David at this rock bottom moment. But the word was, God can't fill what he has not emptied. God can't fill what he has not emptied. David was not full of faith. He was full of fear. David was not full of service of God and God's purpose. He was full of service of self. His own glory, his own preparation, his own, it was all about him. And that had led to the rock bottom moment. But God can't fill him up again with his purpose, with his identity, with who God says he is, with his glory, until he has been emptied. And for David, that is going to be a difficult process. Because the signs were there. God was not his Lord. Actually, in chapter 29, when he is speaking to King Achish, the king of Gath, the Philistine king, the enemy king, he refers to him and honors him as my Lord and my king. He uses those words. In this moment, God's saying, you are serving another Lord and a king. But I'm going to restore you because I am your Lord and king. For a year and a half, God was not his provider. His sword was his provider. God says, I want to remind you, I'm your provision. I'm the one who makes the way. I'm going to be your Lord. I'm going to be your provider. I'm going to take you back. In that moment, the turn starts. Leads us to the second heading of pursuit. We see David's pursuit of God on the way back to purpose. Verse 7 says, And David said to Abiathar, the son of Amalek, bring me the ephod. So that Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered them, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. God's going to give a purpose. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, where, they, uh, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Basil. In David's winding and twisting back to God and godly purpose, this is the crux, this is the key, this is the pivot. And the pivot is that he strengthens himself in the Lord. I want you to contrast it to what we see happening in the midst of his men. Because both of them would encounter the same pain. David, his house is burnt, his, his wife is taken. For the men, the exact same thing. And so both are finding themselves in pain, desperate, desperate pain. 
Both are weeping. It says David was greatly distressed. It says he wept with his men to the point where they had no more strength. They understood pain. But there's this little contrast that kicks in in their response. Because it says that on the one hand, David strength, well, but David strengthens himself in the Lord. On the other hand, what it says of the men is they were bitter in soul and so they wanted to stone David. I hope you see the fork in the road there as both are experiencing great pain. That actually we have a response where we can choose to not go down the destination road of bitterness. But we can choose to be strengthened in God. It says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. The question is, how does he strengthen himself? Because this is the challenge to us. The challenge is, are you and me going to be a people that walk down the road of bitterness? Are you and me going to be the people that put the blame somewhere else when we were right there doing the same action? Or are we going to be a people who look to God? I think there's four ingredients that we need to take note of in how David strengthened himself in the Lord. The first was that he admits lack. What a change in David. When you think about what would have been the last year and a half, he would have been a mercenary warrior. And the problem that comes against him is, it's obvious, if you're going to sow war, if you're going to sow raiding, don't be shocked when war and raiding come home to you. But even as that problem comes and the pain along with it comes, I hope you see David's reaction is not the reaction of a mercenary warrior. His response is not, let's make war, let's go get our women and children back with the power of our swords, with the skill of our fighting ability. That is not his first response. His first response is, let's pray. Let's seek God. Because the truth is, he had skill that could actually do something in helping the problem. But his first reaction is to say, let's pray. Because he understood, hey, every step we've taken, we've taken without God, it led us here. We can't take another step without God so that we can be delivered from this. He admits that there is lack in me because lack got us here. Second thing he'll do is he'll seek the source. He seeks the source. When it says that, Uh, David strengthened himself in the Lord. I hope you don't get get it confused and think that the source of David's strength is him. It's not. He strengthens himself in the Lord, his God. God is the source of strength that he is connecting into. But there's a key word there that kicks in. It specifically says the Lord, his God. It doesn't say the Lord God, the God, a God, his God. What we need to know is there is power available to us because the power of God should be our source. But if we want to get connected into it, power comes through relationship. Power comes through relationship. Is God your God? Because if God is your God, understand the power of God is available to you. The power of God was available to David. The power of God through Jesus and the Holy Spirit is available to you and me. That's why Jesus would say to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. It's why Paul can say things like this to the church in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I am not the source of my strength, Christ is. The source is very clear, but we have to be clear in how we pursue the power is to be connected in relationship. The whole year we have been speaking about his 
presence. That if we are with Him, we can be like Him, and then we can use, be, be used for Him in the world. It means when we're in His presence, pursuing His presence, that presence is going to get into us, change us, so that now we can be used by God in the world. We seek the source. The third one is that He surrenders all. It says that David called for the ephod. I want to tell you what an ephod is. We'll put the picture up of what it looks like. Someone, um, someone said uh, Jimmy was uh, in his priestly garments today on keys. I hope you see it. It's going to look good. But David calls for the ephod. Understand, David is a king. He's not a priest. This is not normal. He's being very specific. He's saying, I need to inquire of the Lord, so therefore give me the ephod. I want you to know, we, don't, we inquire of the Lord differently. We inquire of the, of the Lord through the Holy Spirit. But the ephod would have been this priestly breastplate. And it had 12 stones on it, each representing one of the tribes of Israel. And inside it, it would have a flap that would contain two stones. And these stones would be used to inquire of God so that you could get guidance. God, should we go there or should we go there? Should it be this one or that one? And so when he says, Lord, shall we overtake? God is clear in his answer, you shall go rescue. He inquires of the Lord. He actually surrenders and submits authority over to God. God, you make the call. Now for us today, inquiring of the Lord looks very different because inquiring of the Lord comes through the Holy Spirit, which is available to every single one of us. The question is, are we willing to surrender all? Are we willing to submit all over to God to say, hey, will you make the call? Because the encouragement should be this. We should be a people who inquire of the Lord because when we do, we guarantee that we're going to walk in right purpose. It's going to put guardrails up that guarantee we are stepping forward in confidence because God is the one who is with us. God is the one who has called it. God is the one who has ordained it. And God is the one who will fulfill it. But the trap I think sometimes we fall into when we inquire of God is this. We only inquire when it's something that we believe is beyond us. I think we only surrender to God when it's the thing that's beyond us. But David says, hey, this is even within my realm of skill. I'm a warrior. I could do something about this. But even in that, he'll surrender and inquire of the Lord. How often do we go, hey, this is somewhat in my control, somewhat in my understanding. I'm not going to bother God with this. But suddenly when it's out of our control, when someone's got cancer, when someone is sick, when something is just not looking like it's going to go through, then, oh Lord, what do you want to do here? The picture for us should be that we surrender all to God. We submit everything to God because I don't want to make a step without God leading it. David is in enemy territory. For a year and a half, David has been walking where he has not surrendered at all to God. It has all been about his control, his power, his position. The beautiful picture in the midst of his pain and the pain of his men is this, that surrender precedes salvation. I don't want us to miss that. God says, you're going to go rescue. You're going to restore. Salvation will come. And this is true in this situation and even in eternity. But first must come surrender. David surrenders all. And because he surrenders all to God, God says, now we can bring salvation. David's renewed passion was based on this. 
because he would surrender all of who he was. I am the warrior. I am the chosen one. I, am, I surrender it all to you. You're the one who called. And he surrenders the direction. He says, tell us if we'll go. Tell us if we should. Point the direction. I submit my, the authority over to you. Have you ever thought about what would have happened if God said no? Do you understand the, the complete surrender of David in that he put it completely in God's, in God's court? Yes or no? Shall we overtake? I am completely in surrender to you. That's a heart that is seeking God, that's inquiring the Lord. That's a heart that's on the road back to godly purpose. We said it at the beginning, God can't fill what he hasn't emptied. The place of surrender is our emptiest. But the beautiful thing is we're empty so that now God can fill us again. And not fill us with what inferior came before, but fill us with his supernatural power, his supernatural strength, his supernatural identity, his supernatural power, his supernatural purpose. The last thing he does is he walks in obedience. That's the fourth ingredient. God says go. David immediately gets the 600 men. He says, let's go. They didn't even get a rest. That's why they have to leave 200 sitting by a creek because they just broke and they can't. Carries on with the 400. He's not questioning, God, can you only do it if there's the six? He just says, I'm going. They, he walks in obedience. Now, I hope you also get the picture that they're walking in a desert, arid landscape. And so it actually is very difficult to find a, a, a raiding party that you're trying to seek. For a long time, David and his men have been the ones that are hiding out in the desert. They knew it well. Now they're on the other side of it. But what happens in the next few verses, I'll fill you in, is through God's providence, they find in the middle of the desert an Egyptian slave that had actually been left for dead by the Amalekite raiding party. And so they know who he is. He knows who they are. They cut a deal with him. They say, lead us to your former masters and you will be saved. And so he leads them down into a valley where the Amalekites are, where they're holding the captive wives and children. And it says, David and his men have great victory over the Amalekites. They destroy them. Some are fleeing. They, they capture everything back that was taken. This is actually what it says. David recovered all the Amalekites had taken. And David had rescued his two wives. Nothing was with missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. The last heading is purpose. This is the moment of great restoration. This is the moment where God calls out godly purpose and says, you shall rescue, and he does. And they get back everything that the Amalekites had taken. But as they are on the way back to Ziklag, now with their wives and children and all of the possession of the Amalekites, a great spoil, the 400 men now meet the 200 men who have been sitting back under a creek, like by a creek under a tree. And it says that actually they have a great problem with this because we don't want to share the spoil with the 200 who didn't fight. It says in verse 22, Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, this is important, You shall not do so, my brothers, 
with what the Lord has given. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. I don't want us to miss that in that first section, all you're hearing about is David, 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 David. They're starting to sing a new song. This is David's spoil. You can see where their focus is. And so it's no shock when they get back to the guys who didn't fight. They say, you're not going to share in the spoil. You did none of the work. You don't deserve it. This is our victory. David corrects them. And he says, the Lord has given us this. The Lord has preserved us. This is not our victory. This is the Lord. This is the picture of true restoration. Because what I want you to see in the restoration is not that just God restored their possessions and God restored the people, but God is in the business of restoring hearts and he has fully restored David's heart. We see it in his response. We see it in how he corrects his men. This is what we also need to know, especially, if, especially when you're in any shape or form in leadership. And I hope you hear it when we talk about this at City. Leadership is influence. So that means you don't need position to be a leader. It means you simply have influence. And so whether you're in a marriage, there's influence. Whether you're a parent, there's influence. Whether you're a friend, there's influence. When you're at work, there's influence. But what we need to know is when we are walking in leadership, when we are exerting influence, Sometimes when we lead in sin and darkness, we mustn't be shocked that some of the people who follow us get stuck there too. So that even when David has been restored, he has to look back to his men and help restore them. Because for walk, walking in sin and darkness for a year and a half has poisoned them too. Their view was, this is David's spoil. Their view was, this is our victory. He says, no, that's not how it works. The Lord has given us, it's his victory. And he actually institutes a law that uh, is for the, re uh, for the rest of Israel's history that everyone would share in the spoil. It doesn't matter if you were fighting on the front line or you were sitting back watching the stuff. David's heart is restored. God's in, God doesn't just restore the possessions. He doesn't just restore the people. He actually wants to restore his purpose in David. David's focus now is the glory of God. He says this is God's victory. It used to be about his provision. It used to be about his position. It used to be about his gifting. He's now saying, no, 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 no. This is God's thing. This is what God has called. This is what God has done. He writes a, a famous psalm, Psalm 34, and it's much later on in his life. But David writes this psalm specifically looking back at his time when he was in the Philistine land uh, in the enemy territory. And in Psalm 34, uh, we actually sing a portion of it in Trusting God, that song we sang last week, in the bridge. What you find is this picture of the journey of the restoration of David's heart. Because what he says in Psalm 34 is a true restoration of God's purpose in him. In verse 2, he says, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Verse 4, he says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. Verse 8 says, O oh, taste and see. We heard that this morning. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And then they return to Ziklag. And in verse 26, it says, When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoils of the enemies of the Lord. There was restoration completely across David and his men. There was restoration in David's heart. 
But what we finally see is that David's godly purpose has been fully restored. Because he's reminded again of the call that God had for him. You are going to be king. You will be king over Judah and Israel. And so even in this moment, you need to get back on board to prepare for what is about to come. And so in the spoil that they have, he sends part of it to the elders of Judah to remind them, hey, I'm still here. And I think more to remind himself, these are the people that God's calling you to lead. These are the people God's calling you to serve. These are the people God's calling you to provide for. It's going to be through you. He reminds him of his great purpose, that I chose you, I called you, that God gets to define the identity. I, I get to define who you are. You will be king. I get to define where you will go. I get to define what this looks like. Surrender to God. Complete restoration. The band's going to join me on stage. And I hope that what you're seeing through 1 Samuel chapter 30 is this. I hope the headline to the story is not that David is this great guy. He is. But I hope the, the headline to the story to you is that we cannot walk out a life of godly purpose without the grace of God. That foundationally set in the walking out of your purpose from God is going to be God's grace. Because he knows we will be wayward. We will twist away from him and need to be twisted back. He knows our passions can lead us to other places. He knows we can chase purposes that might be good, but they're not him. And yet he says, hey, I have a purpose in mind. I'm the one who rescues. I'm the one who gives grace. Grace is undeserved favor. He gave under, David did not deserve the favor of God with what the last year and a half had looked like. And yet God sees him in Ziklag, in enemy territory, saying, I know you need rescue. I know you need restoration. I know you need me. And I know you need to be set back in the purpose that I have in mind for you. Because he's on the cusp of taking the throne. And it's through that throne that we will get Jesus. Understand, in the plan of God's redemption of the whole of humanity, David matters sitting on that throne. Because Jesus will sit on that throne. Because it's through the line of David that Jesus will come. And as God needed to give grace to David, through Jesus, God will give grace to the entire world. Through Jesus, God will give grace to you and me. Lester loved it, so I'll say it again, because it was, it was not like it's just the, it's a sidebar. But old preachers will talk about the acronym of grace saying, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what it is. It's that we can have favor, the riches of God, the purpose of God, but it is not paid by us. It is not done in our strength. It is at Christ's expense. That's the picture for you and me. And that's how we can walk out godly purpose. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. Grace had saved David. And through that grace, it changed how David saw the world because he would extend grace to the 200 men that weren't involved in the fight. I hope you, you know that through Jesus, grace can save you and me, but grace becomes the lens by which we see the world. And when it's the lens that we see the world in, it changes how we walk in it. It changes how we walk through it. The question is, are we gonna surrender completely to God? 
and allow His grace to be a gift to us. Because Scripture is very clear that grace is a gift from God. That it is His mercy and His love extended towards us. Because we actually are in complete lack. We are not the source. We cannot save ourselves. All we can do is bring the surrender that will precede salvation. And if we're wanting to walk our purpose, this is the road we need to walk. If we want to be strengthened in the Lord our God, this is how we do it. We look at David where he got it wrong. We understand where we get it wrong and we walk it out differently. Jesus, what a gift of grace we have in you. How amazing it is that we have a God who pursues us. Even when we find ourselves in Ziklag, in the enemy territory, doing enemy things. When we're so lost that we don't know how lost we are. Lord, you meet us in our pain. You meet us in our fear. David was so full of fear that faith couldn't get in. But Lord, you have grace. You have grace that restores. You have grace that will empty out what is not of you and fill us up with the riches that is you. What grace we have. Just before we sing, I wanna, I wanna read this passage from Ephesians 2 because it is a beautiful picture of the grace that has been sent by God to you and me through Jesus that we can be saved, that we are uh, loved by God, that we are cared for by God, that God has you in mind, that He is seeking to restore you, even if you find yourself in Ziklag, where you are against God, a rebel, uh, not wanting anything to do with Him. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Jesus, you call us to walk in great purpose. You call us to walk in the salvation that is on offer through Jesus, but it is all found in the grace of God. Lord, what is dead would you make alive? Lord, would you awaken purpose within us again? Would you awaken identity in us again that we were dead and now have been made alive, that we were walking in the dark, but you have brought us into the light? It is all about you, Lord. You are the living God, the living God that we come to, that we lift up, that we worship. Let's sing together.